I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Well, welcome back for another episode, folks. It is definitely fall in South Dakota, where under God the people rule. There's a chill in the air. The leaves are falling. I just love this time of year. The flannels are out. I'm wearing the sweaters. Really wonderful. And as uh, listeners of this podcast will know, we are in Respect Life Month, month of October, where we are exploring a number of different facets of uh, the pro-life movement during the month of October. We are rounding it out this month, as promised, with a conversation with Harold Cassidy. Harold is a pro-life lawyer with clients all across the country, including in South Dakota. One of his South Dakota clients is the Alpha Center. We talked to their founder, Leslie Unruh, a couple of weeks ago. Harold has been representing the Alpha Center in some ongoing litigation that's really really got some amazing prospects. Uh, Going up to the Eighth Circuit, which is sort of the federal circuit in which South Dakota sits, kind of ranges from the upper Midwest all the way down through Arkansas, one of the, the federal circuits. Unfortunately, Harold had a conflict come up, uh, so we couldn't interview him in person for this week's uh, broadcast, but he sat down for an interview with Dale Barcher. Dale is the director of South Dakota Right to Life. Harold and Dale uh, sat for an interview at Right to Life's convention at the beginning of the month um, that they they had their 50-year anniversary convention here in, in Sioux Falls a couple weeks ago. And Dale and Harold kind of unpacked this really, really important litigation. We've had a couple of requests from listeners saying, hey, what's going on with this? So um, without any further ado, as promised, I hope you really enjoy this conversation and it helps you understand what's happening in the, the role that South Dakota and the South Dakota legislature and South Dakota Pregnancy Help Centers are playing in our pro-life legal fight. Enjoy the conversation. you this question, Harold. Did you always want to be an attorney? Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Yeah, sophomore year of high school. Okay. I uh, decided I'm going to go down. I want to know what it's like to be a lawyer. I thought it would be great to be a trial lawyer. And it was a wonderful man in Atlantic Highlands, New Jersey. We lived in the North Jersey Shore. Uh, I lived up on a hill. At the top of the hill was Mount Mitchell, the highest point along the Atlantic Ocean from Maine to Florida. I walk down the hill on a Saturday morning. The man gives me an hour and a half. Tells me all about what it was like to be a lawyer. I walked out of there. I told him I want to be a lawyer. I want to try cases. And I want to have an office on Broad Street in Red Bank. Now, Red Bank was the, in Monmouth County, that was the cultural and professional and financial center of the county. Monmouth County is famous for the Battle of Monmouth. You know, New Jersey was the crossroads of the Revolutionary War. Most people know about the Battle of Trenton when Washington crossed the Delaware on Christmas Eve and the Battle of Princeton. Well, in the Battle of Monmouth, we had our very first American feminist, Molly Pitcher. And so in the Battle of Monmouth, Washington defeated the British, Molly Pitcher, took the water to the men on the, on the front lines, and when one who was manning the cannon was wounded, she tied her dress up, manned the cannon, fired on the British. Washington chased them all the way across Middletown, through Monmouth County, through my hometown, out to Sandy Hook, where they got on their ships and fled to New York. So I wanted to be in that center, in that beautiful community, 
beautiful county, Red Bank on the river, the beautiful Navasink River. That's what I wanted to do. Well, did you realize that dream? I was yes, I was admitted to practice in 1975 on the day that I was sworn in. There was a case, I was in Trenton, the War Memorial Building, there was a case in Monmouth County held ready for my availability to try. In 1982, I formed a partnership with a couple lawyers. We opened an office on Broad Street in Red Bank. We bought a building, we renovated it. My father-in-law, we doubled the size of it, a big, beautiful Victorian, everything we wanted. And uh, I had a fireplace in my office. We had stained glass windows. And I was litigated a lot of medical legal, did medical malpractice. I had the first jury trial in the history of the state resulting in a verdict against doctors and nurses for the suicide death of their patient. I had the first case that told the statute of limitations, a woman who, a young woman who was raped when she was a minor. In the case, we had the case that told the statute of limitations, so because of the damage that this man did to her, she was unable to assert her rights. So the statute, we won a case, a decision, that the statute would toll until she was able psychologically to assert her rights. As fortune would have it, the rapist won the lottery. And we got all his lottery winnings for her, every penny. <laughs> I had the first case in New Jersey that established the Supreme Court, established the right of an an, a, someone accused of a crime to have independent counsel. First case anywhere that we ever heard of, affirmed by an appellate court, where we got the state, compelled the state to put them, I could prove who committed the crime. I had an innocent guy, and they ordered the state to put the bad guys in the lineup. Never happened before. We, uh, my little firm, we, I had two partners, we had nine associates, we had 12 lawyers. In 1989, some of you are old enough to remember the savings and loan debacle, and all across the country they were um, closing up. Well, we were the only firm in the state who was authorized to work for the FDIC as outside counsel. So we got grandfathered in, we wound up being involved in litigation involving 100 of those bank failures, and uh, I got to litigate successfully the first post-bank closing due process hearing in the history of the state. Our little firm, we had three of the first six U.S. Court of Appeals decisions construing that statute. Now in 1981, I started doing some birth mother rights cases. These were women. Adoption, as we heard today, is a marvelous and wonderful institution. But women who were forced to give up their babies against their will called me. And if they came to me soon enough, I could get their babies back. Giving babies back to a mother who wanted the baby was a great joy. Later, which you'll hear about, women started calling me because they were forced to have abortions that they didn't want. And I couldn't get those babies back. Because the people who violated their rights killed the babies. So we did... Um, you know, I did the Baby M case. Peter Jennings and ABC World News made me person of the week. 
given out to one person in the world once a week. He was particularly nice to me. He actually ran it the second time. I didn't show up for coffee. He invited me, but he did it anyway. We, um, I had an, I, we had a big appellate practice, and I had uh, a 78% reversal rate, where statewide average was 15%. So as a result of that, at one point, I was asked to join the legal team of Reuben Hurricane Carter, the famous boxer who was wrongly accused of triple murder. And after four fully reported Supreme Court decisions, and New Jersey Supreme Court, and two federal habeas corpus proceedings, after his having spent 18 years in jail, we won his freedom. Harold, tell me about uh, your work with Mother Teresa. Well, after I started doing the abortion work, which I'll tell you about, um, my spiritual advisor was Mother Teresa's priest. And he did all her worldwide priest retreats, and he also did them for Pope John Paul II. And uh, in the beginning, when I realized I had to do, start doing the abortion work, I was with my firm in the building on Broad Street, and in the very first abortion case, um, Mother Teresa agreed to be a friend of the court. So we, I worked on that. I would be in my house. She'd be in Calcutta. I talked to her on the phone. I started it as if it was an, uh, an affidavit. And we would talk on the phone. I drafted it. And I would send it to her. In those days, we did not have email. We're talking about 1992. And she would mark it up and send it back. And I'd be waiting for it. And then one day, I got a phone call from a convent in San Francisco. It turns out Mother Teresa did not believe in spending money on postage. So she waited until a nun came back to the States. <laughs> And then I had to pay for overnight mail to get it sent to me. Well, Harold, you're calling Mother Teresa tightwad? No. No, Mother Teresa, very interestingly, she would not take pledges for people. People all around the world wanted to give her money and said, I'll give you X money dollars a year. She said, no. I'm not going to rely on any human being. I rely on God. And the money that was given to her, she was very frugal with. You know, the one thing you didn't have to worry about was Mother Teresa wasting money. <laughs> so, but the other interesting thing about that, and I'm going to tell you about how I got started on the abortion work in a moment, but when I first realized that I had to do the abortion work, living in ground zero of the abortion culture, my wife was scared to death. My partners were scared to death. And she really didn't want me to do it. I called Father Tom one day and I said, Father, I can't do this work if my, mother, my wife is not going to support it. It would be impossible. I can't have friction every day when I go home. So he calls Mother Teresa. And I find out later, Mother Teresa creates this scroll with an intention from my wife's conversion on her resistance. She entombs it in the altar in Calcutta, 
and has all the nuns pray for it. Within three months, my wife not only decided it was okay, she came to work with me in my office. That's Mother Teresa. <laughs> but that brief, um, that affidavit, I realized it had to be a brief. And so I called the girl. I couldn't be her lawyer on an amicus brief. So I called the great Robert George, the brilliant Princeton professor, and I asked him if he would represent Mother Teresa, and he said, oh, no, of course. And he made it better. And um, I have a copy of it here. Later on, if we have time, I'll read a couple little passages for people. It's a treat. But um, let me tell you how I got started with this. So 1989, I'm living my dream. I'm on Broad Street. I've got a very lucrative practice, very rewarding practice. I have a beautiful wife, four children. I have a fireplace in my office and the stained glass windows. I'm person of the week. The papers are always writing about how great I am. It was a life of comfort and acclaim. I go to Rome in November of 89. I was asked to go to an international conference to give a talk, and I did. And while I was there, I saw Father Tom. He had an office at the Vatican at that time for Evangelization 2000. And while I was in Rome, I had a deeply, deeply spiritual experience. And it changed my life. It changed my life dramatically. A couple months later, I get a phone call from a couple they referred to me in my medical malpractice work. They wanted to retain me because they wanted to sue a lawyer. And um, turns out that they had a baby with Down syndrome. And they wanted to sue the lawyer because the wife was over 35 years old. The doctor did not do an amniocentesis. And they told me that they would uh, have had an abortion had they known. I hadn't given much thought at all to abortion up to that point. So I do my work, I consult with an expert, the expert confirms that there was negligence. I uh, am able to determine uh, at that point in time, just two years earlier, the Supreme Court of New Jersey came down with a decision that created the wrongful birth cause of action. So that this couple had a lawsuit against this doctor. And I was forced to ask myself what it would be like for me and this little girl, for me to go into the well of a courtroom and argue to a jury that they had to give millions of dollars to her parents because they lost the chance to kill her. So I brought the couple back in, and I tried to be as gentle as I could. My wife and I, whenever we wanted to have a baby, we just had a baby. Healthy, I was sensitive to their disappointment, but I spent about an hour with them, explaining to them why I couldn't represent them. But I told them they had a cause of action, it was recognized. I had an opinion from a doctor who said that the doctor was negligent. And at the end of the session, I gave them the names of three lawyers who did malpractice work. And they said, that we want you, you were recommended. And I said, no, 
I explained the whole thing. A couple days later, I got a phone call from one of those lawyers whose names I gave them, and he told me that they came in, talked to him, and they wondered what was wrong with the case. He didn't get it. He said, there must be something wrong if you turn this down. So I explained it to him a little bit, and um, that was the end of it. About that year, in 1990, I had more spiritual experiences. In fact, there was a series of miracles, and I realized that I had to do the abortion work. And so I started taking some cases, and ironically, in the first two cases I was involved in, one of my experts was Dr. Jerome Lejeune, the famous world-renowned Parisian geneticist who discovered the cause of Down syndrome. And Bernie Nathanson, everyone probably knows who he is. He was experts in the first two cases also. And I realized um, at that time that there was a need to, for the pro, any pro-life lawyer who's going to be serious about this work, had to learn the science and had to prove that the abortion is killing a, a human being. And you can't just say it or talk about heartbeats. You had to prove it. And I had a brilliant brother. One of my brothers was a, literally a genius. He was, every time he tested, he tested over 170 his IQ test, and he got a PhD from Harvard University. He was a biochemist, and he patented antibiotics for Merck. And through him, I met some of the most brilliant scientists in the world. One of them was a guy named Dick Monahan, who acted as a consul for me. And Dick had the patience of a saint. He actually would come into my office on a Saturday and try to teach me the rudimentary concepts of molecular biology. Now. Now, Dr. Lejeune had already introduced me to some of the concepts, you know, of the regulatory genes and uh, methylation of cytosine, et cetera. But Dick actually got down and dirty with me. And we also, together, looked at the pain transmission. And in 1995, we actually developed the first analysis that showed that the unborn child experienced pain absolutely certainly from 20 weeks probably from 13 and possibly from eight weeks. And we wrote that up, we circulated it. And at that time there was a man in, um, in London who did research, Nicholas Fisk, and he was a pro-abortionist, but a scientist. And he wanted to prove that the child couldn't experience pain. So he went through a series of uh, studies where he was, in, he was introducing painful stimuli to the unborn child and measured the endorsement in, in endorsement levels. And he, he started at 30 weeks and he kept doing it and the endorsement, level, endorsement levels went through the roof and that was a signal. That's what happened in an adult when they experienced pain. He got to 20 weeks and he stopped because he didn't want to prove before any earlier than that. A number of years later, he actually was an expert in one of my cases. We defended uh, the partial birth abortion statute in New Jersey. So we, had, we went through all of that. By the way, Dick Monahan um, 
headed up a team of 90 scientists. This is the guy who came into my office and talked to an idiot like me. He, he, was a head, he had a team of 90 scientists and he discovered the cure for river blindness. Whole communities in Africa went blind at the age of 30 and no one could figure it out. They figured it out, it was Dick Monahan who discovered the cure for river blindness and Merck got, delivered all of that medicine to those communities in Africa. So then we got David Mark, and to make this short, world-class team of experts, the leading human embryologists in the country, one of the leading molecular biologists, and we put that team together, and in the early going, that's what we were working on in our cases. So, Harold, how is it that a New Jersey attorney becomes associated with the state of South Dakota and the pro-life work here? You know, this, this, this is a coincidence. Um, this isn't why I became associated in South Dakota, but my parish, St. Michael's, in Elberon, New Jersey, on the ocean, has a connection with South Dakota. South, just, just south of St. Michael's in Elberon, one mile, is Seven Presidents Church. There were seven presidents in the United States that had their summer White House in Elberon, right where we are, St. Michael's. Beginning with President Grant, ending with President Woodrow Wilson. And in fact, President Garfield, after he was shot, wanted to die there, and they took him there, and he was on the ocean because he loved the, the summer breeze. Well, next to Grant's home, there was a big giant place that was owned by the Drexel family. You know, Drexel Burnham, Drexel University, and there was a Catherine Drexel who inherited a fortune who is now sainted. She was canonized by the Catholic Church, one of only seven United States citizens ever canonized by the Catholic Church. And they were in a parish there on the ocean and their place was right next to President Grant they actually paid for the altar in my church. Well, she started an order of nuns and she became famous. She took, her, she took all of her money and she built schools in the inner cities in Northeast New, Jer uh, in New York, New Jersey, and elsewhere on the East Coast. And she was famous for that and she especially built them in the minority communities because those kids in 1900, 1890, 1910 were being neglected. I come on one of my trips here. This is my 56th trip to South Dakota. On one of my trips here, I was looking to go to an early mass, and I come across, and I see that there's a St. Catherine Drexel's parish in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. <laughs> and, and so I decide I gotta go there, and I go to mass there, and after the mass, I talk to the pastor and I said, how, how is it that in South Dakota, I can't even believe it, she was only canonized a few years earlier. I said, how is it that there's a St. Catherine Drexel Parish? And he says, well, actually, we're the third. I said, but why in South Dakota? And he says, because she's the only canonized saint known to ever step foot in South Dakota. <laughs> and I said, how did that come about? And it turns out, that while she was building the schools and teaching the kids in the Northeast cities, she was doing the same on the Indian reservations in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. 
So, we have a connection. So, Harold, in um, the few minutes that we have remaining here, walk us through, if you will, in layman's terms, for me, not for them, so that I understand, but walk us through the Planned Parenthood versus GNOME piece of legislation that's making its way to the Eighth Circuit Court. Can I do one thing before I do that? Yes, you can. That's, that's important, and we have to leave with that. But there came a point in time when my partners wanted me to stop this crazy abortion work. It's a great story. All right? Like I say, we lived in ground zero. Everybody was apprehensive. Um, some of the l people in the legal community were already talking. What's Cassidy doing? And I was forced to make a decision. I was either going to stay in our law firm, living the dream that I loved, or I'd have to leave and devote myself full time to this. And I made the decision to leave. I owned 50% of that building. I signed it over to my law partners, gave it to them, took some possessions, a desk and some things, took some of our library, and a friend of mine gave me a room in the basement of his building out in the horse country. And so I went out there and it was a room, my office was 10 foot by 10 foot, concrete walls, no windows, the ceiling was six and a half feet off the floor. If I jumped, I hit my head. My wife set up her desk in the boiler room. And this is how we started. One day, I'm sitting there feeling sorry for myself, thinking, what the heck did I just do? And the walls seemed colder and the ceiling seemed a little bit lower. And I call Father Tom and I say to him, <coughs> this is hard. And he says to me, of course it's hard. So I said, well, it's really hard. He says, of course it's really hard. You're trying to change the world. And I said to him, but it's painful. <laughs> and he says, if you are not feeling pain, you're not doing enough. That was the last time I complained. <laughs> So, um, I'm asked to talk about the two cases out here that we were involved in. The first case was the Rounds case, which was the informed consent case. It was actually a break, a groundbreaking case. South Dakota, you were the first state to tell the courts, right in the statute, that one of the interests that you were protecting it was about the children, of course, but not only the children, but the mothers. And that the mother has a fundamental constitutional right to a relationship with her child, and that that right needed to be protected. Abortion is not a right or an exercise of right. It's the waiver of one of the most fundamental intrinsic rights any mother has in all of life. And so, that was an informed consent statute. And South Dakota won everything. We won four, we represented, my office represented Alpha Center and Black Hills Pregnancy Center in those cases. And that's Leslie Unruh, you know, Leslie and Alan Unruh and all their great people and, and Travis's 
um, Black Hills. And you won two different en banc opinions. En banc opinions means all the judges said, this case is so important that we're not going to just leave it up to a three-judge panel. All 11 judges in the Eighth Circuit is going to hear it, and they did it twice. And South Dakota got attention, the attention of the Eighth Circuit. The last time that there were two en banc decisions in a single case was about 16 years earlier. But the case that's now in the courts that, that Dale alluded to is one, of, in my judgment, is one of the most important cases in the country, which may prove to be the most important. It is the anti-coercion statute. And your legislature put right in the statute that it is not only a proper exercise of the state's authority, but necessary to exercise its power to protect the mother's fundamental interest over and give precedence to it over this method of terminating it by an abortion. Because all this is termination of those rights. And so we're in, that, we're in the court now, and they passed a wonderful statute to protect the women against coercion and pressure. I'm watching the, I'm watching uh, Dale watch his watch, so. <laughs> a lot of watching going on. Okay. And, and um, so we're in court now. Some of the provisions that your legislature put in this statute is not duplicated anywhere else. Number one, they said nobody can, take a, can schedule an abortion except for a doctor. But only after the doctor actually meets with the pregnant mother in person. And only after that doctor does an assessment for coercion and pressure, goes through an analysis of pre-existing risk factors, and only after that doctor goes through the informed consent statute, and then that doctor can schedule an abortion, and only that doctor, but can't take a consent that day. And that abortion can't be scheduled earlier than 72 hours, and in counting the, in calculating 72 hours, you can't count Saturday, you can't count Sunday, and you can't count annual holidays. And if the woman comes back, the pregnant mother comes back, they, they, the doctor can take the consent, but only the doctor who did that, that initial assessment can perform the abortion absent some extraordinary circumstance. Now all of that is now law. It was enjoined, but the injunction as to all of those provisions has been lifted. But there was another provision that prior to a consent being taken, that pregnant mother had to go to a registered pregnancy help center to be counseled by certain licensed professionals on what we call the preliminary question. Because this is unlike any other so-called medical procedure, this concept that you have a statute in your state that says it's a murder, punishable life imprisonment, to kill an unborn child at any time after conception. And the statute makes, a, makes a, an exception if a doctor gets a consent. And that consent, if obtained, does what? It authorizes the doctor to terminate the mother's fundamental constitutionally protected relationship 
terminate the life of one of the doctor's patients and immunizes the doctor from a felony that is punishable otherwise by life imprisonment. Don't you think it should be informed and voluntary, that consent? So in this particular procedure, it's unlike anything else. There are non-medical components. The question of whether I can and should keep my child, that has nothing to do with medicine, and they admitted it in this case. It's a non-medical decision. So your legislature, in its wisdom, requires a third-party counseling at a registered pregnancy help center, highly regulated, and limited to the non-medical component, an assessment for coercion pressure, telling the mother all of the help that's available to her, financial, non-financial, public and private, if she really prefers to keep her child, explaining her relationship disclosures, and explaining that there's actually a human being already in existence. That's still enjoined. And that is now in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, the Great Circuit Court. And the, the case is going to be fully briefed. It's, we're in the briefing process now. It's going to be fully briefed. And by the end of November, we expect that there'll be an oral argument sometime in maybe February, March. We can get an opinion out of the Eighth Circuit in August, September, October, and the interesting thing is, we have someone here, I think, mentioned the Mississippi case. I'm going to tell you there's only two things that's going to happen, two possibilities. One, 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 one thing that's not possible is that they're going to reaffirm Roe v. Wade in its entirety. That court is not going to do that. I predict that court's going to uphold the, the Mississippi statute, which is a prohibition on abortions after 15 weeks. They're going to throw out their strict pre-viability, viability rule, Roe v. Wade will either be partially overturned or it'll be completely overturned. In all likelihood, it probably will be partially overturned. It's possible they can go all the way, probably not. We will know in June. And if they partially overturn Roe v. Wade, I'm telling you the most important case in the United States of America is going to be Planned Parenthood versus Governor Christie Nome and Alpha Center. Bye. And so, Harold, it if we could, uh, in the last few moments that we have, and the last time we looked at a watch, you've looked twice, and I haven't looked once, okay? <laughs> just, just so you know. Uh, Harold, tell us about the um, concurrent resolution, uh, 10,004. 10,015. Yep. Okay. So, your legislature passed a concurrent resolution. You should read it. It is educational, and it's powerful. Roger Hunt, the great Roger Hunt, um, was one of the moving forces. John Hansen, um, 
I saw Phyllis Heinemann here. I think she was involved in that. And there were others. I, I should stop mentioning names because I'll leave out some really important people. But in it, it is a statement directed to the United States Supreme Court explaining all of the state of South Dakota's grievances with its decisions in Roe and Casey and lay out all those grievances and how it has prevented the state to protect the women and children of its state. Now, there's one passage, if I, if I may, that I want to read. There's a, lot of, there's a lot in here that's worth reading. I'm going to put my glasses on. While you're putting your glasses on, Harold, very graciously, has brought the convention 75 copies of this concurrent resolution. And so when you leave, out at the table, out in the lobby, uh, you can pick up your one copy of the, of the concurrent resolutions. You will love this, especially what Harold's about to read. So there's a lot of aspects to this that's worth reading, but the legislature said, in part, if there are any self-evident and universal truths that can act for the human race as a guide or light in which social and human justice can be grounded, they are these. That life has intrinsic value. That each individual human being is unique and irreplaceable. That the cherished role of a mother and her relationship with her child, that every moment of life has intrinsic worth and beauty. That the intrinsic beauty of motherhood is inseparable from the beauty of womanhood. And that this relationship, its unselfish nature, and its role in the survival of the race is the touchstone and core of all civilized society. Its denigration is the denigration of the human race. This relationship, its beauty, its survival, its benefits to the mother and child, its benefits to society, all rest in the self-evident truth that the mother is not the owner of her child's life. She's the trustee of it. Oh, amen. Amen. So, uh, so Harold, I, I have a final, final thought, but I'm going to let you give a final thought. Okay. Um, before I do that, I just... <laughs> you're talking to a lawyer. Give him oh. a note. <laughs> Eight minutes. Eight minutes, fun. okay. <laughs> My summations would be two hours. <laughs> but they were beautiful. And... <laughs> <laughs> there were a couple of times where I even had juries saying, don't stop, please. <laughs> and the judge said, please stop. <laughs> so, Mother Teresa is talking about being an outsider. This is the only brief she ever filed in her life. Okay? Mm -hmm. And she says, talking about being an outsider, she says, in another sense... No one in the world who prizes liberty and human rights can feel anything but a strong kinship with America. Yours is the one great nation in all of history which is founded on the precept of equal rights and respect for all humankind, for the poorest and weakest of us, as well as the richest and the strongest, and as your declaration of independence put in words that have never lost the power to stir the heart. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness. And Mother Teresa says, a nation founded on these principles 
holds a sacred trust, to stand as an example to the rest of the world, to climb ever higher in its practical realization of the ideals of human dignity, brotherhood, and mutual respect. It has been your constant efforts in fulfillment of that mission, far more than your size or your wealth or your military might, that have made America an inspiration to all mankind. It must be recognized that your model was never one of realized perfection, but one of ceaseless aspiration. And she goes on to say that talking about this aspiration, the task has never always been an easy one, and each generation has faced its own challenges. But in a uniquely courageous and inspiring way, America has kept its fate. And then she talks about one of the fatal, infinitely tragic, destructive departures from that effort. And she goes on to say, America needs no words from me to see how your decision in Roe v. Wade has deformed a great nation. Human rights are not a privilege conferred by government. And she goes on to talk in a very pretty way. And she ends with this thought. She says, I have no new teaching for America. I seek only to recall you to faithfulness to what you once taught the world. Your nation was, the found, was founded on the proposition, very old as a moral precept, but startling and innovative as a political insight that human life is a gift of immeasurable worth and that it deserves always and everywhere to be treated with the utmost dignity and respect. It's Mother Teresa. Harold, so final thought, my yeah, friend. So, so one th final thought. Um, all of life is in collaboration with God. Few areas of life is it more evident than in this one. Your work is sacred. You're literally defending God's creation. So I want you to remember that, number one. Number two, the business of justice is everybody's business. In Casey, the Supreme Court told us this was a private matter and it's none of our business. Well, the business of justice is everybody's business. And on this last thought, this is wonderful, marvelous mosaic. When you look at the people who are fighting to defend this creation. We have the pregnancy help centers. We have the Leslie Unruh's and the Travis's and the Alpha Centers and we have the Niflas and we have the Karenets and we have the Heartbeats and we have 50,000 women who get up every day just to help other women with 3,000 pregnancy help centers. And you have legislators. You have the Roger Hunts, and I can't go on to name the names, but you know who I'm talking about. And we have the AULs and the ADFs 
and the ACLJs, and we have the right to life, and we have the South Dakota right to life, and we have the jails, and we have all those people. We have the legislators, you know, and we have the governors who sign the bills and in some instances inspire them. And we have the experts who put their, their whole reputations and their careers on the line. And I can go on and on and on. We have brilliant people like the Robert Georges, like the Helen Alvarez, like the John Finneses and the Jerry Bradleys. And this great mosaic. And we shouldn't soil it. You're not in this room by happenstance. It's not a coincidence that you're here. You've been called to do this work. And it's God's mosaic called to do this work. We shouldn't soil it by crazy infighting. We're going to have disagreements. It's good to have disagreements. I once had a guy work for me, a lawyer, for 18 years. His job was just only to tell me why I was wrong all the time. <laughs> and 10 to 15% of the time, he convinced me that he was right. He changed my mind. But the other times, it strengthened your argument. It strengthened your analysis. We should challenge each other. That's okay. But never make it personal and never attack each other. So two things, and then I'm going to get off the stage. One, all of life is a collaboration with God. And two, the business of justice is everybody's business. And you know what? It just occurred to me. I'd like to hear you say that. The business of justice is everybody's business. The business of justice is, is everybody's, everybody's business. business. Thank you. <laughs> cool. And thank you for tuning in for this episode, dear listeners. As always, grateful for you joining us. If you've got feedback, as always, comments, critiques, show ideas, we want to hear from you. You can go to sdcatholicconference.org, click contact us, drop us a note. Love to hear from you. Until next time, live well. <laughs>